And just like that, we're back with I Eat Movies number eight. (laughs) We are back again. That's right. Eight episodes. We've somehow made it to this. uh, Is eight a lucky number or is it just a. Um, I don't know what eight is. I mean, I I, I want to hope that it's a lucky number. Especially. It looks like an S, so it's seductive. It, you it know, it's, it, it kind of looks nice. There's symmetry. I don't know yes. what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, nonetheless, uh, welcome back to I Eat Movies. I am, co- of course, your co-host, Mike, joined always by my good friend, Dino. What's up, man? Hello there. What's going on? What's going on? Fucking crazy times, man. Crazy, crazy, crazy times. times, crazy times, busy weeks for the both of us. Um, but we are psyched to come back, especially after our um, unique episode seven scene report where me and unique. Dino, yeah, right. It was it was, a little, it was little, different. Uh, it was different for us anyway. I don't know. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, it was definitely yeah. different for us. A little uh, more shooting from the hip. But that was really fun. It was very well received. Uh, as always, thank you guys for uh, those who have listened. Um, that was fun. But for this week, we are back to our semi-normal program. Um, but yeah, this um, week is a little bit of a throwback, um, a bit of a companion piece, if you will, to our Mike's first time episode where we tackled 1989's Harlem Nights. Uh, well, I like to think I like to think this is like our a sub series. This, this is, is a this is because because uh, you know we it, it, it's it's like a textbook film nerd thing to kind of like act surprised or play it up or you know how how what do you mean you've never seen blah 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 and and and, and it, it it becomes kind of trite it gets kind of worn out but I think we can have some fun with certain movies that one of us knows and is kind of like so close to that uh celebrating the learning process celebrating the you know exposing movies to people like i i i don't know how many things i like as much as showing people a movie they've never seen before that i love so it's kind of a let's i'd like to think theoretically they're connected yeah absolutely and um yeah so we are we are we are throwing the ball back to Dino uh, this week to introduce him to a film that he has not seen, which be gentle, please. <laughs> we're going to try and be gentle, but you know, um, going into this with all honesty, the film that we are tackling today, I had only seen last year after reading so much about it and actually even only. What seen... do you mean? You only saw it last no, I know. Sorry. <laughs> well, Carry on, little, please. I will throw a little bit more salt into the wounds because I only ever saw the original 1960 Godard film last year as well. Uh-huh. And then I tackled. Which did um, you see first? I saw, I saw the original first. Now, Okay. Well, we'll get. We'll, we'll, yeah. Let's let's get back to that yes. later. <laughs> we'll get back to that uh, later, indeed. But um, yeah, so I thought that this was a fun one uh, to throw towards Dino because, uh, to my astonishment, he had not seen it. Because Dino is always, uh, you know, discovering or knowing about uh, plenty of good stuff. So this was a really fun one to stumble upon that uh, realizing that he did not see. So yes, uh, we are very psyched for um, to tackle Dino's first time, ladies and gentlemen. Pass the lube, please. <laughs> With 1983's Breathless. Richard Gere, 
Atlas, rated R, now playing at a theater near you. You know, if I could fuck a movie, <laughs> I would fuck Breathless, quite frankly. Wait a second. Wait, hold on a second. I, I think we should get a little di disclaimer here, please. Uh, yeah, we're talking about a remake today, and it's a remake of a French new wave. Uh, I don't know. how is it is it Vage? Nouvelle Vage? I, I don't know how, that's, how the word uh, wave is pronounced in French because it's spelled V-A-G-U-E. But anyway. Uh, this, than I ever will so so we're made, well, I'm not a French speaker. I, you know, I, I, I've made that mistake plenty of times, but um, trying. But uh, okay, so any, the point being, we're talking about a remake today. So if anybody, if you've made it this far, if you can talk, if you can stomach the sound of our voices this far, uh, and, and, you, and, you, and you resist the idea of, of anything ever being remade, uh, listen to another episode of ours or, or yeah, something, because we, we are talking about a movie uh that is a remake of um a pretty important 1960 film anyway yeah um yeah well said well said uh again just to reiterate i had only seen the godard film last year during the pandemic and then shortly after that i tackled the remake and now i'll be honest I, I certainly appreciated the original breathless i you know obviously going into it as you know um a lover of film you know of its of its importance to cinema um i can certainly appreciate the film for all of its artistic flourishes and the performances there's all good stuff in it i i enjoyed it you it know, is I, a jean paul belmondo movie after it all. is it is yes not uh, that i've seen it but i do like him so. yeah and and it's good it's it's very good um yeah so it's it's deeply respected uh you know considered to be one of the best films ever made um so tackling that for a remake uh that's tricky i think that that's tricky for anybody it's not you're not not for any remake um there's always going to be harsh criticism um against a remake but especially when you have the cojones to tackle something that is considered um, a beloved classic to so many people that is where it gets interesting but in the case of breathless this one really came across my radar because again if you love and appreciate quentin tarantino then you certainly can stomach and kind of hang on his every word for film recommendations um uh, i know i certainly do i could listen to that guy talk as well as people like uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, Guillermo del Toro. But as we all have come to know, Tarantino knows his movies and is very passionate about what he loves and about as much, you know, as much as what he doesn't love. But in the case of 1983's Breathless, Quentin Tarantino has hailed it as one of the coolest movies ever stating, you know, even stating, here's a movie that indulges completely all my obsessions, comic books, rockabilly music and movies. And that's pretty much what you're getting here. So this film, you know, uh, it stars Richard Gere really at the height of his uh, male sex. That sex was symbol status. Sex yeah. symbol status, just, you know, through and through sex symbol status uh, coming off such um, really important films like American Gigolo, the great Paul Schrader, uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Days of Heaven, An Officer and a Gentleman, um, and Beyond the Limit, which he made in the same year as Breath Breathless. So in this film, he stars as kind of like a huckster uh, swindler named Jesse who steals um, an expensive car in Las Vegas and hightails it to Los Angeles where he is looking to pick up money that is owed to him as well as seeking this girl that he's deeply in love with, this French student. 
And one really grave mistake kind of marks him as public enemy number one. And from his ride from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, which might I add, he mentions that is a town that he does not have, uh, you know, that he has plenty of enemies in. He's marked as public enemy number one. And now from this grave mistake or uh, judgment that he made, uh, it's the film kind of follows him and Monica as to how this this decision is going to impact um, their lives uh, going forward. That is basically the short end of it. I'm going to gush over this movie a lot because I fucking love this movie. There is a there's a fucking energy to this movie that I just absolutely love. It's super erotic. Um, it's very stylistic. Uh, it, it's tonally unique in setting and style as well um, as swapping the genders and nationalities of the two lead roles, Richard Gere and uh, Valerie Kaprisky, who we will talk about uh, plenty. She plays from the original. That is. Yeah. From the original In the original film, it deals with a French criminal and an American journalism student, um, Gene Harlow's part. Uh, And then in the remake, the roles are switched. The genders are switched as well as the nationalities um, and the location, of course, because and the, the location, the of course, yeah. which we're going to talk about vastly, because as much as the original Godard film, uh, London um, really sets the tone for that film. That's exactly what we're getting in the remake. Los Angeles is a living, breathing character in this film. And for my money, one of the best Los Angeles films ever produced. But, you know, I, I think with all of that, being digested, I think that the the 88 blob, but specifically within the same year that Breathless came out, uh, the one that I'm thinking of, of course, is Brian De Palma's Scarface. Um, that, of course, was a remake of 1932, um, the Howard Hawks film starring Paul Mooney. And we have to remember, too, that at the time of that release of that film coming out, it faced the harshest criticism <laughs> with many deeming it, and I quote, uh, empty many calling it an overblown B-movie before years later being reevaluated as a classic of its kind. And I think that it is damn time for Breathless to uh, be reassessed in a similar light. Um, That's my initial mouthful (laughs) on Breathless. This is, of course, Dino's first time. So uh, Dino, uh, being being the good co-host that he is, um, has been playing very coy with me on text messages this week saying, I, I couldn't hold back my excitement for this episode. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk about it. So we'll deal with you. We'll deal with your, we'll yeah. dispense with your excitement, monkey boy. Um, <laughs> It'll be squashed now. So I, I am overjoyed and a little frightened, but Dino, please. <laughs> <laughs> Dino, please tell us I... what was your first time like with Breathless? I uh, I love the idea that uh, I can inspire um, uh, overjoyed and a little terrified simultaneously. I I think I think I think eight episodes in, you figured out how to massage my ego perfectly. Um, uh, I've never seen the the, the Godard uh, movie, and this was my first time. Uh, I think Monday night. I watched the tape. I think it's uh, maybe a Vestron tape. Uh, of this movie that I've had lying around for a while because you weren't the first person who mentioned it to me, even though uh, I know it's got a bit of a reputation. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Please I, leave I, us in suspense. 
all right, terrified and overjoyed. It's like uh, that's that, that. I mean, that's where do you go from there, right? That's that's like the perfect speedball right there. Um, I uh, I fucking hated it. Oh no! <laughs> no, I'm I'm lying to you. I actually really liked it. Oh, you fucking asshole! <laughs> okay, you, like you didn't hand me that, please. <laughs> Well, I was very scared. You have you don't understand what this man has put me through all week. I, I oh, really, for Christ's sake, for Christ's yeah. sake, my, my first time and it's my fault. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> okay, no, I put, put I haven't put him through anything. He's just I just didn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it's, we're, we're it's, uh, being dramatic, but yeah. Oh well, that that really well, puts you, me you handed me you handed me that that was that was too easy. You yes, know? And I did. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so no, I uh, look. I um, I this movie opened up, and uh, I I just you know I rewrote my notes, which is what I aspired to do. I actually had the time to do. Um, of course, I thought we were starting an hour later today, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> I was rewriting my fucking notes, and I uh, like almost immediately in like the right margin, I was just jotting down and circling like, oh, that movie was took from this movie, and this movie took from this. See, what I kind of got um, pretty fast is uh, there's a, I mean, there's a shitload of rear of rear projection uh, driving in yeah. this that. Um, that looks. I mean, it, it's meant to look a little plasticky, and I'm assuming that's the, 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 that's a direct reference to the original in terms of visual connection to it. So, like, I prepared myself at the beginning, which starts off in Vegas, for a um, kind of futuristic noir kind of vibe. I, I lived, the first two movies I wrote down were Streets of Fire and Trouble in Mind, mm-hmm. be, which to me kind of exist in a similar. Um, universe of like it's a retro future like it sure. doesn't it, it reflects the past but anyway but, but that which didn't take at all and and like i have to admit i was thrown off by the beginning because when 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 richard Gere's character jesse lujack i i you know i i didn't do as much work as i would have liked to on some of these names mm-hmm. uh with the exception of the guy who's the, the, they mention a guy whose name is johnny goddard uh <laughs> ha 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 uh Link. Yeah, but like no, like he shows up and I think he lights a cigarette in this Vegas. The movie starts off in Vegas and he literally comes out of a, I think a casino and he's up to something. He's got this other character who's like kind of tailing, you know, characters so he other other people, this female character who's who, who's tailing other people so he can probably steal a car. Yeah. Um which is not clear if he's repoing it or whatever. Anyway, I first looked at him and and I didn't even realize it was him. I think he lights up a cigarette, and the first thing I wrote down is Pepe Serna, which is uh, which is Pepe Serna is is one of the actors, one of the Latino actors uh, of the period. I think Serna is from Texas. I think, uh, and I'm like, because he just had this, the, he had this suit on, and it just it it had this kind of like. It had this kind of vibe to it that I wasn't sure if it was referencing noir, if it had a certain sleaze to it. And but like Vegas has I don't I, I don't know. Vegas definitely has something to do has a bigger value in this movie because I made it through one and a half viewings of it. I didn't finish my second viewing. I try to watch everything twice uh, that we that we discuss. This movie is so stacked with metaphors, and it's so it, like it's so deliberately made. This is, I think, this is kind of the movie that, as much as I mean, I can still feel like 
how pissed off film reviewers and classic film nerds must have been that in 1983 they remade a 1960 movie. I can still feel like right. the purists bristling at this movie. But I also realized like how many movies, like the fact that this came out before Into the Night, before mm-hmm. After Hours, before Something Wild. And it's like, yeah, all those movies have are probably have the influence of of the original, but like this movie is doing something very distinct, um, yes. and I think it's doing it very very well. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My first my first time my first time was pleasant. Um, I, I I need to again. I need to finish. I need to finish the second watch of it. Um, but there's, I mean, it's just kind of packed because. It really reads as a movie that's meant to be like a total visual feast, like just like kind of dazzling you quickly with um, with uh, the Jesse character, you know, singing to himself, talking to himself, talking to the car. You know, he's like kind of coaxing the Porsche that he steals in uh, in in Vegas, in Las Vegas. And it's just kind of like it feels immediately a little plasticky and kind of comic-y to begin with. Mm-hmm. And... I think it plays with you a little bit because it has so, so much of a focus on the visuals and the style to it that when some of the other concepts start seeping in, um, it's kind of deceptively complicated, if that sure. makes sense. Like, yep. like there's, there's a lot more going on. Um, and the whole comic book thing I thought was really interestingly handled. Yeah. Um, you know, much in contrast to the fact that we're like in this total morass of of comic book superhero movies at this point. Yeah. And it's like it's actually discussed surprisingly well, at, but it's an aside. It, it's a parallel at best, yeah. you know, if not just like um, a weird inspiration for the character. This right. the, the focus on Silver Surfer. But it's, it's just it, there's a weird cartoonish like unnatural vibe to it which maybe maybe reflects the whole idea of las vegas and starting in las vegas where it just jumps right into the action and all of a sudden i'm you know scrawling down notes like what the hell is this where's this movie taking me now yeah so uh yeah 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 well that's uh those are great points um and kind of an interesting springboard um let's roll it back a little bit um Mm. as you said when we're first introduced to richard gear the jesse character we meet up with him in las vegas which uh i can't think of a more perfect setting to set this really uh charming um likable uh reckless character so from its opening shots the thing that i really immediately gravitate and appreciate in breathless is um, these opening shots of Richard Gere uh, from these cowboy boots to him reading this copy of of the Silver Surfer, his way with women, and, you know, of course, the eventual jacking of a really expensive car. Breathless establishes Jesse with just this tremendous ease immediately telling us everything we need to know about what this guy stands for and what he loves in life. And I just thought that it's like... Just from those opening shots and just how he is with the singing and and that just unbelievable smile that Richard Gere has and everything, you're just immediately like, I I I like this guy. Like I'm. I'm did you I'm, always like Richard Gere? I did. I did always like Richard Gere. See, um, I didn't. Well, I, be, really, you know, I really, I real, like again. I have this idealized concept of like this window of time from like 87 to 92 thereabouts, you know, um, 
not just commemorating the year you were born, 87, but uh, <laughs> no, the year I turned 10 and was kind of like, you know, movies kind of meant more to me as I was, you know, reaching a certain age, I suppose. Two of the movies that I was the wrong age, the wrong mindset for, the movies that I don't want to like ever go back to just like, like for childish reasons, admittedly mm -hmm. um, are dirty dancing oh. and pretty and pretty woman. I've never like seen pretty woman still at the point at which pretty woman came out. And this is again, like this is probably unfair. This is probably too, uh, too individual to me. It was such a phenomenon and he was such a, he was such a pretty character. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, you know, it, it was only, it see, it, it, in retrospect, it seems like it was only a couple of years between um, uh, Pretty Woman and then Indecent Proposal. But it was one of those movies that when I was a kid, girls my age just cooed over and wouldn't shut the fuck up about. Yeah. And oh, I remember. Again, <laughs> as a little kid, as a kid, you know, slowly, re you know, as an adolescent at that period of time, I was just like, I'm fucking done with this movie. But yeah. I had a chip on my shoulder residually until my friend John, you know, was like, listen, you idiot. Like, you you know, knowing the tastes in movies, in movies that we share, he forced me to sit down and like actually watch American Gigolo. Mm -hmm. And and uh, because I just had this weird chip on my sh I mean, there was a period of time that he was like a celebrity that people wanted to hate. Yeah. Uh, the period sure. of time that everybody, you know, kept repeating the whole like, oh, I think he's the guy who, I don't know, got caught with like, you know, stuffing guinea pigs up his ass. Yeah. The, 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 that whole thing, yeah, yeah. which I don't even know. I don't even know. See, I, 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 I don't even know. It's I don't all know just what, like a ginormous rumor myth, like it reminds me rumor before it the reminds internet. me of the the, the pumped stomach mm -hmm. uh, myth because uh, growing up, a friend of mine, he you know, let's see, when I okay, when I was a kid, the adolescent grade school myth about the pop star who had his stomach pumped and there was semen in his stomach, yep. was George Michael. And my friend Tim, at some point, talked to his brother, who is, um, I don't know, maybe not, maybe not quite ten years older. And he's like, "Oh yeah, when I was a kid, it was Rod Stewart." So it's one yeah. of these like, like, oh, it's the same fucking bullshit story that gets yeah. spread around with a, yeah. you know, with top with, with the topical slash scandalous like homophobia that was certainly part and parcel of the eighties. It just, it's just one of those bullshit things that just keeps getting recycled. But it was one of those, you know, it was. I don't know. I picked up at a stupid age a stupid idea about this actor. And it took it took a friend of mine literally sitting me down saying, you like Paul Schrader, you, uh, you should see what Richard Gere can do in a movie like this. Because I had this block of Pretty Woman. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, and, you know, and since then I appreciate him much more, you know, because um, I could see the things that, you know, he can do that's not simply, you know, you know the, the 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 schmaltziness of Pretty Woman or whatever, but um yeah uh, you know and then he pops up in things like um he's uh he has a small appearance in um Report to the Commissioner which mm -hmm. I love, yeah. uh and it's a really sleazy one and it's like you know before he became this pretty guy which was definitely like part and parcel of his image his manufactured image and so uh, the image that was sold of him by the time pretty woman came out he was doing other stuff and that's it was important for me to get to my point right.
Yeah, and you know, I I think that's interesting too, and I, and I think that. I think that Richard Gere is really underrated, and and to your point, I, I think more and more people need to go back to things like American Gigolo and certainly Breathless because I think that he came out at a point where um, I think that he was very fortunate to come out because you think about so many leading mans um, that are particularly get, get the sex symbol status um, connected to them. Richard Gere really came to prominence where he got – um, and rightfully so, he got bestowed with that sex symbol status, but he managed to he managed to connect the good looks with um, really strong material that made, you know, not only great use of his physical attributes, but really combined it with really, really strong filmmakers, strong writing. And I just don't think that that's there anymore. I, I think that anybody that you could possibly compare to um, a Richard Gere today. I don't even know if somebody like that exists, but just one of these up and comers that get really um, kind of overwhelmed with that sex symbol status there, there, the material isn't there for them to kind of experiment with anything more than rom-com or schmaltzy type of material that you speak of. So yeah, I think that Richard Gere was really fortunate when it came out when um, he came out and got to be involved in projects like this. But also, it's because he's a damn good actor, and I think that people forget that or try and overlook that because his looks are so um, pushed. You know, like that's the yeah. narrative. Like they they push the looks on him. But I think that when people look at American Gigolo and certainly should, um, you know, dig out and reevaluate something like Breathless. They're going to discover, uh, you know, a really unknown talent that they didn't know was, you know, in front of their face for the better part of 50 years. And, and I won't deny, like, I only in the past, like, year or so, I saw the 1990 movie that he did besides Pretty, Mo Pretty Woman that I completely should have seen. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fucking Internal Affairs. Internal oh, yeah, Affairs, yeah. Internal Affairs is, I mean, that... I don't know if he's ever been better mm -hmm. because it's like, like it's a character, Richard Gere as a character using his suaveness in the most like manipulative, like underhanded way possible. Like mm -hmm. that works so well in the, in yeah. the, in the complete sociopath, like dirty cop character. He plays uh, Dennis Peck in uh, internal affairs. So, I, you know, it's just it, like, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, nostalgia. Nostalgia in so many cases, trying to take apart nostalgia. It's it's the place and time and where you were and yeah. And I just watched the wrong movie that this guy made in one yeah. year. Yeah. So there well, you go. It's it's totally fine. Um, just jumping off a little bit of gear, who we will certainly return to. Um, I want to talk about Valley Capri Valerie Kaprisky, mm. um, who plays Monica in the film and um. There's obviously a bit of history between the Jesse character and her. Uh, he hightails it from Las Vegas uh, onwards to Los Angeles to pick up money that is owed to him. But also he's dead set on reuniting with really the girl that kind of left him high and dry in Vegas. Um, it, it's again from the clothes and this charisma and this just real unwavering confidence about Jesse's character. He's also just... A, a complete hopeless romantic as if it wasn't clear enough from the tattoo, uh, you know, across his chest uh, of a broken heart over his actual heart. If that doesn't drive the point home any sharper. So he's in route. And, and it really, it, it, it really, by the way, it really looks like a prison, like a homemade tattoo or yeah. a prison tattoo also. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. So he's traveling um, to Los Angeles to 
uh, kind of rekindle the romance with this uh, with the Monica character. And Valerie Valerie Kaprisky, um, she was a French actress. I believe she was 19 at the time that this film was made. And I think Gear was 32, maybe yeah. or 29, somewhere in and around. I think there. He, I think he was like 32 or 33 already. Yeah. Right. Um, and she this was her first American film. Um, uh, the year after Breathless came out, she was in a film called La Femme Publique. Uh, she did Movements de Désir in 94. And then um, as of late, she kind of trans uh, transitioned to television work, more recently appearing in over 450 episodes of a television show called Chronicles of the Sun. Um, wow. Now, yeah, incredible. I, I, I think it's got to be some sort of a soap opera um, or soap murder mystery in France of some kind. Um, very impressive, nonetheless. Um, now, Monica, outside of the fact that she's just we're only we only know so much about her from Jesse's pursuit. He, he's just driven to reconnect with her. So we don't see her um, for a little bit until he obviously uh, gets to Los Angeles, uh, breaks into her apartment, you know, takes a shower, leaves a Polaroid of himself, uh, looks at her calendar and then mm -hmm. hightails it to the college where she's um, studying to be an architect. Uh, when we finally see her, I don't know if you got the same vibes from it, but I was like, yeah, I would have absolutely driven from Las Vegas to Los Angeles <laughs> in, in the thick of a night for Monica. Cause she is just jaw droppingly beautiful. This girl, I mean, she's just absolutely beautiful. And it's a shame because a lot of the criticism with this film is kind of faulted on her, uh, saying that her lack with the English language and sort of uh, what right. some people might call like a boneheaded quality about her makes the film suffer. I completely say fuck all of that. I think that that's, that's kind of lazy criticism because I don't really think that when we first meet her as, um, as driven as Jesse is, and we think that this is going to be sort of like a, a real beautiful moment of, of, uh, of love being rekindled. That's not really the case here. Like Monica no. makes it, Monica makes it very, very, uh, clear, um, that she's not really beat <laughs> for, for Jesse, you know, like she's, she's not easily wooed by him at all. She almost immediately recognizes the bother that Jesse is and how he doesn't fit into her future plans as an architect whatsoever. She's making that very clear. So, but there's just still something so charming about Jesse where you're almost still on his side. Like she obviously has more history with him and knows stuff that we don't know necessarily about him, but we're like, come on, like give him another shot like there's something so charming about this guy so well he charms her he charms her you know for almost immediately almost by, immediately. by, by, yeah. by going into going to that review meeting she's in yeah um but 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 you know in terms of in terms of her you know i i think one of the things i like a lot about this movie is how they um they play with the idea and the conceptions that people might have of uh of french people and the fact that they reverse the two roles you know it would be one thing if you have this, you know, this 19 year old French actress uh, who is completely lovelorn and, and plays like the stereotype of being the um, the flighty and uh, inspired French character who just believes so much in love that, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and instead, she's just she's calculating. And, yeah, she's she's absolutely got all these plans 
and he doesn't fit into her plans at all. And she does, and she's trying to make sense of him. And he's not even like an element. If he's even, if I'm not even sure the character of Jesse is really even a person. Um, which is not to say that, which is not to say that he's not like you know alive and active and you know whatever. But he's such a he's such an instilled um, embodiment of like passion. You know, he 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 might as well just be like you know. Uh, he might as well. He might as well just be like the human id, effectively. Like he's doing every, every almost every single motion he does is is fluid from the last thing he does, and it's all based on what he feels like doing. Uh, the same way he jumps from uh, one situation to the next, from one stolen car to the next, and whatnot. Um, I think Gear does a really nice job of being somehow like smooth and hapless at the same time. Like the the big thing you hinted towards is that he 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 shoots a cop and it looks like an accident. It right. looks like he doesn't really know what the hell he's doing, having picked up a, a pistol he found in the glove box of the the Porsche that he stole for he stole in Las Vegas. And it's like, oh, I guess I just blew out the back window of the car with the you know with the gun, and it turns out I killed a cop. And yeah. then he just keeps moving. Yeah. Um, but, but but that's I, the but, interesting thing about that. And uh, yeah. I do forgive that we kind of jumped ahead. I mean, Monica is just so ravishing that we had to jump to her immediately. But, but she's yeah. also shown, you know, she's also shown in this setting. You know, it's, it's funny. The music plays a decent part in this, but it's like by, by 1983, in 1983, uh, Animal House was not so embedded in, in popular culture that you could use that song. You know, don't know much about history. Uh, just Just to illustrate a college setting. You know, at this point in time, it's like if you're going to use that, you know, popular, it was a popular song of its time. If you're going to use that song, you're almost certainly referencing Animal House because it's so like embedded, like it's so much a part of like the Animal House. Like I think it's the food fight scene or yeah. something like that. But anyway, but the way we see the way we see uh, Monica and we're introduced to her on campus, her hair is tied back. She's in an interview. She's got like this, you know, th this mock up house and whatnot. And he just lit he's literally walking. In, he, he's literally breaking up people as he walks through them. You know, there's, uh, you know, on campus, he's so a completely foreign element. Yeah. to uh to the campus and it, it, what's the line he's he says foreign, he's almost yeah. foreign um almost to the world of los angeles you know like th this is now monica's kind of relocated home and he comes in you know we, we have to mention again again the, the, this just complete you know sense of like overblown confidence in him he's walking these la streets you know cigarette and mouth with these electric blue pants and this equally hot pink shirt i i mean the, the man you know he is loud he is visually he, he basically is he basically is inertia that's yeah. basically what this guy is he just yeah. has to keep moving but it's just the, the way that we're in that, that we're introduced to her on campus and just just to what, the point I was trying to make is, is that you know they flip the they change the characters around from the original. Of course, I understand that just from reading. I haven't seen the original, but she is the practical person who has plans, who can't figure out what his deal is or what he really wants to do with her. Mm -hmm. Even I, I read somewhere I think did they have like a four a four night like stand or something in Vegas, something along those lines, but. Um, you yeah, know, it's, it's 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 it seems like it's vague, but it obviously left enough. One of the reviews said yeah. four. I don't know why, but I, mm -hmm. it stuck in my head because I I didn't really quite get that. But um, but yeah, he has that line where you know, 
it's one thing that they're in the world of Las Vegas and they explore so uh, Las Vegas in the in the world of, of of LA and you see so much of that as as they move through it. But even more artificial is this college atmosphere where I think he actually says Las Vegas was real life. School is this school place. That's a holiday, you yeah. know, <laughs> like because yeah. it, it seems so weird to him. And he, he just effortlessly walks into the meeting and breaks the meeting up, pretending he has to take the table. Yeah, he's like uh, maintenance. Yeah. Yeah, because there and, and just it's it, the, the, there's three different people like her professors or whatever advisors and that guy Paul. Um, they're sitting at card tables, which I think is even funnier. Yeah. He just takes he takes up he picks up a card table and it's just the constant like his monologue <laughs> is constant. He's just like, yeah, you know, I gotta take this for the art department because you know they uh, they need something to put a banana on because <laughs> they're gonna draw it, you know. And, and it, it's 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 I don't know he he. He he does inhabit the character. He I would definitely say that there's something that Richard Gere manages to do, and he's screwed up and uh, infantile in a way, but completely charming and and like pretty much impossible to take your eyes off of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as as, as bright as his clothes are, I mean, it, it's the performance that is equally electric here. Um, I do want to talk uh, again, go back a little bit as. Uh, Jesse is pursuing, you know, making his pursuit to Los Angeles in a stolen Porsche, as you mentioned. Um, this event that kind of puts him out to be public enemy number one, as you mentioned, uh, not only just in clothes, but in action. I, I mean, subtlety is not Jesse's strong point by any stretch of the imagination. He has stolen a Porsche with a loaded gun in the car, and he decides to blast Jerry Lee Lewis tunes Um you know, at high volume. And that moment in particular, that driving moment um, in the desert where the sky and the whole setting almost takes this red hot kind of visual look to it that I think really establishes this pop art, almost comic book sensibility that the film just totally excels out uh, the entire runtime. But, but it doesn't rely, but it doesn't always rely on it. Because, because it switches like like it's using that as a montage but then you get a lot of these drab like kind of beautifully industrial la settings that are not really flashy settings the only flashy settings you really see for the most part i think are the scenes that when monica is with paul yeah. um occasionally they end up in places and he and he is so the paul character is, is interesting to me because we get so little of him but everything is really really lame yeah. like it's really like stilted and it's completely in contrast to 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 jesse like yeah. they're in an elevator and she's like yeah it's wind it's windy and he's like yeah the uh the wind is uh exciting yeah, <laughs> he's trying to say things like that. I'm and, so happy and, and, you recalled that because I absolutely wrote that quote down just to establish how much of a zero Paul is. But obviously, that's the intent here, you know? <laughs> right. And, and it doesn't matter to Monica, who's just, you know, kind of calculating or or just like casual that she, oh, yeah, maybe I'm sleeping with my professor here and there, but it doesn't whatever. It's it's, it's insignificant. Right. And and the other the other thing is I, I like that he. uh like a joke that either goes over her head or she just conveniently ignores it. You know, he's, he's mocking like one of the more glamorous places you see in the whole movie. He's mocking it. He's mocking the architecture. And he goes, which I'm, I'm you know, it's gotta be like a, an architect, you know, an yeah. architecture dad joke where he's like, you heard of Frank Lloyd, right? This is Frank Lloyd wrong. Yeah. You know, oh. it's just like, so, so like grody to the max, like such he a just, nerd. He just, like, he's just so canned. It's great. Yeah. I'm just like, and it's like, you you can see it 
in Monica's eyes that she knows like her schooling and being with this guy is would be quote unquote like the normal thing to do, the right way thing to do. Right. But we as the viewer are like, no, like it might be you know, less certain and more dangerous with Jesse, but like that's the way you want to go. You don't want to be with a zero like Paul. Like, fuck yeah, but that she's guy. just she's just sleeping with him because she has to get to the next step. Right. Like, yeah, it's part exactly. of her plan and where she wants to go. She plays, you know, she's the thinking, planning, analyzing person, mm-hmm. um, who uh, who will forego who will forego so much of the passion based thinking that uh, that Jesse's. The, that makes up all of Jesse's character. Right. So definitely it's, it's interesting in the remake, how um, they alter kind of the, the crime um, that kind of sends the, the plot into motion. Um, as we mentioned, you know, Jesse has stolen this Porsche. He's, you know, he's, he's blasting Jerry Lee Lewis tunes. And then he decides to call even more attention to him by trying to get around a, a Mack truck in the past, you know, on the shoulder. And of course uh-huh. the state trooper, you know, sends up the lights and starts to pursue him. Jesse tries to outrun him. Doesn't work out so well for him. And then he discovers, um, or, you know, more, uh, more or less rediscovers the gun. And as you mentioned, it, it seems like it's an accidental shooting, like an accidental discharge of the gun. And that's where it kind of things, I think it, it's, it's subtle, but it's very significant in, in how I think you feel towards the characters, um, in the original. Well, he also says, he also says right around the time he's getting pulled over, he's just like, ah, I'm jinxed again. Like, yeah. well, well, as if like. You know, we can easily believe that this guy who's got so much charm, he just keeps fucking up by virtue of being, you know, being unlucky, which by the time we get well into the movie, it's like this guy's been really fucking unlucky. He's 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 got like this crazy criminal track record. Yeah. And that's I'm happy you brought that up because that's something that I definitely want to circle back to later. Yeah. He he does make a mention of that, that he's jinxed like he's always jinxed. And that's going to come up um, several times. That's a a reoccurring thing that Jesse is going to cite about his own self and personal situation. But like we said, there's a there's what seems to be an accidental discharge of um, this gun that shoots the state trooper. Um, And that is, like I said, a slight but subtle and significant difference between the remake and the original, because in the original, the character um, that Jesse plays, that character sort of coldly kills a cop for really no reason. He has right. he has a fascination and an obsession with Humphrey Bogart, so that mm. plays into it. But but the killing of the cop in the original is sort of um, it, it's it's really it's actually rather cold blooded. Whereas with Jesse. I think we're still on his side because as quick as it is, I mean, every time that I watch it, I'm like, oh, he didn't intend to do that. That was a complete accident. Like he hadn't like that was not his plan. He did not intend at that moment. I don't feel like that. So I think that's a that's a big, big difference with the roles where when you see the character in the original. And again, I don't want to jump too much and do a a compare and contrast of the original and the remake, because this is certainly not what this episode is about. But I think that's a big thing where as to why um, we continue to care and give a shit about Jesse because he's so charismatic, but he did not mean to hurt that cop. And now it's this crime that's following him because at this moment, we don't know if the cop's okay, if he's alive or whatnot. It isn't until he gets to L.A. and shortly after he's there now that he realizes the cop has died and now things are just 
growing worse and worse for him. Right. And, and but he's it, it, like it, it's not in his character to like wallow in it. Right. Like the one or two times we see him really confronted with something, he works himself out of it and into a different mood, either with sex or, you know, primary motivation, really love. Um, and uh, but he can't stay there. He has to keep moving. That's just it's not it's not in the it's not in the in the ability uh, of, yeah. of that character. Just, I, OK, so just to throw things off for a little bit, um, please. Where I I feel like I know the answer, but I just want to talk about remakes for a second to mm-hmm. you because Please. I know I guarantee we each know somebody uh, or multiple people who rail about remakes and why sure. remakes are terrible. And I hear I hate remakes and and so on and so on. I don't. Um, there's there's a few that I think surpass the original. I agree and. Uh, I you know look I don't know I, I I was taught by one of my mentors that um sacred cows get slaughtered, mm-hmm. I always liked that saying yeah um but in as much as I don't know do you have an ethic about remakes I'm curious you know before before I, I before I put out my general thinking about about why um, why why I why I appreciate I'm not an enthusiast for remakes per se but I'm I'm absolutely opposed to the idea that we should be anti remake or yeah. Or uh, blanket hate remakes or what have you. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't have a hard stance against them. I know that it's like it's become very you know popular and trendy since fuck. I don't. I don't know what, what the you know the the late two thousands when this wave really started and it just really ballooned in the twenty tens where it was just like ugh another remake. It was just like that's like the trendy kind of like go to response by a lot of people. But was it really? But was it really part of a trend? Because like you just you did it, just say that there's always remakes of classics in the eighties. Yeah, I, I mean it. It just it feels like it. I guess. Um, in this day and age, like I said, like the late 2000s through the 2010s, because there was just so many of them where it just felt like almost on a weekly basis, there'd be several of them coming out where it really felt like mm. there was l- less and less originality. Hey, they that remade be- Rollerball in the 90s. So. They sure did. They which sure I do did. like, which I do like to bring up on occasion just as a laugh. I've never seen it, but yeah. it's one of those it's one of those remakes where um where people seem to have quickly forgotten that it existed. So but anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a hard stance against them because you know what? A good movie is a good movie, whether it's based on an existing property or what or what have you. So I'm not against them by any means. If something attracts my attention, I'm going to go see it. And in the case of today's episode, I, I'm... You haven't seen the original, but I am definitely, I would say, in in that very small minority of people that I think that this film in particular surpasses the original. And again, in the 80s, there were many films like that that did that. I mean, you know, the the thing um, of the Cronenberg's The Fly is another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could also make a case for um, the 78 invasion of the body snatchers. You can certainly make that case. Um, so there's plenty of them, but no, I, I don't, I see very little reason to outrightly hate a remake sight on scene just simply because it's a remake, because it's about what you do. It's going back to my original point. If you can do take the kernel of an idea and, and again, 
the the concept of of breathless isn't wildly original i mean we've seen this countless times you, you know sure. star-crossed lovers that you know have a who, who was it who was it who said who's the french director i think might have been a new wave guy who said all you need maybe it was brasson who said all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun do you ever hear that quote? <laughs> I have heard that. I don't. I. I. You might be right, but yeah, that is a great. I'm quote. not sure who it was, but yeah, go on. So. That is a great quote. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not like wildly original, you know. I mean, we've seen plenty of of films uh, like this. You know, it, it's embedded in film noir. I mean, Gun Crazy, which will come up again in this episode. So it's sure. not it's not wildly unique or original. But I think that that the small concept of it is so good that you can transplant that and do something different where the energy is fresh and everything feels new and exciting again. And I think that's exactly what we get in Breathless. So, yeah. In a very long-winded way. No, I'm certainly not against remakes. All I ask is that if they're going to remake something, do it with a lot of passion behind it. Do something mm. original that we haven't seen while keeping um, a bit of the integrity of what made that original worth watching in the first place, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I have I have a couple musings on this because I um I never feel like I have enough. Uh, you just threw out a couple of great ones, but I never feel like I have enough examples on hand when I actually say when when I when I try to argue. Look, you know, I, I know there's temptation to be purist about movies, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I, I the one I always mention is I really really prefer the remake of Cape Fear. Uh, yeah. To the original, as much as I love uh, um, Robert Mitchum and so forth, uh, I, I, you know, and you know, it, it could be the period, the age, and the you know, the nostalgia rule. I said before, it's the time and the place. I definitely saw that first run in the theater, and it was just the the what the, the way that color is used and color washes filling the screen, um, in interstitials and so forth. I thought was it just blew me away when I first saw it. But yeah, see. Uh, like I, I, okay. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Sorcerer. I think you know mm. that. Okay. And Sorcerer, and Sorcerer, right? And Sorcerer is, you know, William Friedkin's take on uh, um, Henri Georges Clouseau's um, Wages of Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a mutual friend of ours has been like, I like the original version first, uh, you know, better. And to me, it's like I don't, you can't even think of them as versions. They're based on the same story, but they're so right. different. But anyway, um, a to me, uh, I always remember that like Hollywood is remaking stories already in the '30s. Mm-hmm. Um, I always forget what year it is, but there's that movie Gold Diggers, which was made like they remade Gold Diggers like in the 30s, like two years after they made the first one. Yeah. Um, so there's the argument that Hollywood relies on remakes and they sure as shit aren't anything new. What I mean by that is uh, is basically that I've never I wasn't prepared for people to act as if a remake um, was an insult to their own childhood. You know, the movie's not what I grew up with, so therefore you're insulting me personally. Like that that thinking doesn't like it, I don't know why uh, I'm not acting like I'm superior, but that thinking doesn't register to me. But OK, bear with me for, for a second. So <laughs> if we as human beings, if human beings, if the human animal is distinct from any other any other uh, animal by virtue of our capability to communicate 
um, by the level of communication and the, and the wide range of communication that we have, okay, mm-hmm. then undoubtedly our oral tradition is the, the idea of storytelling is one of the oldest and maybe, I mean, easily the most important mm-hmm. or one of the most important ways in which human beings, our species, communicates. So the, if, if the greatest thing that we do is communication, then obviously storytelling you know, predates any form of recording devices, any form of making movies and whatever. Storytelling is as old as, as, as the species is, right? Yeah. So if a story is meant to be retold and it's a thing that we've already been doing as a species from the beginning, then making remakes of the same stories by virtue of them being so well um, – so well constructed from the beginning that they can they can withstand different ideas and different approaches mm-hmm. then remakes are about as normal for our species as it gets right yeah does that make does that make sense like i i, oh, I don't no, know it, i don't know no, if i phrase that well no, that that makes total sense. Yeah, and I th- I think that people would uh would be would do good to just uh, to take what you said. Um, you know, by because the people get people get mad as hell at they, the they, idea. Yeah. How dare they? And I again, I can. It's like you know, this is eighty three. This happened. I can right. still imagine the bristling of the people who felt like they were culturally defending. Like, I, I feel like I could go to the anthology film archives and bring up Breathless today and get some old film nerd mad. Uh, mm-hmm. Anthology film archives, for people who aren't familiar with the place, is basically, I like to consider, it's basically like a, a YMCA for, uh, for old men. They're almost always men, to be fair. Uh, for for old people like film nerds, like experimental film nerds and whatnot, I just I could still feel the bristling that must have happened in 1983 at the idea of how dare you touch a piece of the French New Wave, like right. the like it's so easy to get people riled mm-hmm. up about film remakes to this day, and I'm still kind of like I still kind of wonder what that's about. You know, yeah. that's that's all that's that, that that was the point of this whole aside. So thank you. For indul- I mean, thank you for indulging me. Oh, I'm I'm happy to indulge indulge you on that. I mean, all I can say uh, on that note is that it's a shame for those people, because in the case of Breathless, uh, it's a great movie. It's a great fucking movie. Um, and it's switching- doing something. I think it's really like there's things going on in this movie that um, that, re- you know, that, that that can handle quite a bit of analysis for sure. For sure. Um, Diving into that, you know, uh, we've talked about Jesse and Monica quite a bit and we will return to them. But um, another character um, that is huge in it and it's a breathless is a quintessential example of a city spirit being embedded into the fabric of the film. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with that, Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, in my estimation, I would say that Breathless is uh, really a neon-drenched love letter to L.A. Um, we see, you know, eatery hotspots, because if you uh, weren't aware, you are listening to the I Eat Movies podcast, so we have to cite these things. Um, you see eatery hotspots on display like La Casa Burrito, um, a bar that Jesse and Monica pop into where the character Carlito, played by an I Eat Movies Hall of Famer, uh, Miguel oh, yeah. Piano. I was so – I was not I, – I had no idea. I did – I kept, I, I, I kept, I played that one close to the vest. I wanted. No, no, I, and I didn't look at anything about this movie. So I'm like, hey, Mikey's in this. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Good. And yeah, at one I, point, at one point, he's dancing with uh, yeah. with Monica, which is great. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I kept that one close to the vest because I, I wanted that one to be a surprise for you. Um, I figured you'd appreciate that. But yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so yeah, they stop into La Casa Burrito um, at that bar. Uh, you also get a nice shot of Randy's Donuts, another um, L.A. benchmark. Uh, and then also the finale of the film, um, which takes place at a place called The Pines, or right. as Jesse relates, um, I think Errol Flynn used to live here. Uh, in actuality, a sort a, a short aside about that. So um, Jesse refers to it as, you know, Errol Flynn, of, you know, the adventures of Robin Hood, you know, famed classic Hollywood star. Um, it's his former estate, which in actuality, it's not. It's a little complicated uh-huh. and it's kind of buried in myth. Um, so bear with me a second. Uh, it is, sure. it, was, it was not his estate. He merely stayed in the pool house there briefly in the 1950s after he forfeited his own Mulholland drive home, um, over back alimony. Um, the place, the estate actually belonged to Huntington Hartford, who was the heir to the A&P grocery fortune. Um, but yeah, that that location in particular is a very memorable L.A. calling card. It is also located um, on Mulholland Drive. It's better known now as Runyon Canyon Park. It's a big Hollywood Hills hotspot for hiking and trails and whatnot. Huh. Um but around this time, Hartford, you know, the estate was so vast that at, at uh, some point, uh, Hartford attempted to sell the property to the city who refused it. And then he sold it to a Kahula importer by the name of Jules Berman, who planned a big luxury home subdivision. So the construction was set for 1970, but then neighborhood resistance groups kind of thwarted those plans. And then a fire in 72 actually just ravaged the property, leaving only stone foundations and really leaving it to rot and become a breeding ground for graffiti and drifters. And that is basically what we see in Breathless. It's just kind of this ghostly sort of like foundation. You know, you see the pool. It's all graffiti. It's a real graveyard of like. Well, you know, it, it, it gave me it, it, for a second. I thought I, I was wondering if it was if it was anything like uh, the, the the graveyard from Return of the Living Dead. But I think that was mostly constructed. I thought the exact same thing when he approaches those gates. I was like, wait, seeing it in the daytime, that looks really familiar. But no, it, it no, no, no. Yeah, that, 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 I think a lot of that was was built for that movie. But yeah, I, I just say it, it, there's definitely a reason why they mention like it's definitely deliberate why they mention Errol Flynn. And, and my initial thought was if it had been Errol Flynn's place, Errol Flynn was I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Errol Flynn was a guy that that was really difficult to work with. Um. Yeah. And the idea that he was like he was basically crashing at the pool house mm-hmm. is also like that also jibes perfectly with you know with, with the Jesse character yeah. you know like he just shows up and he's you know he's just sleeping there and that's what it is you know yeah. so the, I, you could easily see that I just there's it's not completely obvious especially on first view but like the choices that Jim McBride made the director made um, they're all very deliberate they're all loaded with. Uh, potential, you know, metaphors or references to, you know, different things in, 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 in LA. Like one of the things that I was like, you know, super excited to see that I don't know if anyone else would care about, but uh, one of the, one of the many cars that he steals is outside the O'Neill house, which the O'Neill house was, um, was, was, uh, was built in the late seventies based on designs by uh, the designer Anton Gaudi. But the same house is used as a shooting scene as like, I think, the house that uh, Andy Garcia's character lives in in Eight Million Ways to Die, a personal favorite. 
and he mm -hmm. and it's it's it, they literally reference it so much because it's a very distinctive like it, you know it's a very distinctive house it's got all these like unusual like wavy kind of shapes to it along the lines of this sculptor um but like it, it's uh you know andy garcia's character you know just, you, you like this house man it's gaudi it's gaudi hey get this guy a catalog about gaudi you know like it's it's completely <laughs> like but it's a different angle and it just Somebody pulls. They're all like classic cars in this in this in this movie too. Yeah, deliberately. Somebody pulls, uh, which is very LA classic car culture, but it's also referencing 1960 original movie. Somebody pulls the car up next to it, and like it's it's a it's a house you cannot help but help but um but notice if you know what it is. So. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's you know we we've talked about this already, but it it goes without saying uh, to mention it again. Um, again, you know, subtlety is really not Jesse's strong point in this movie. Although um, he has stolen a vehicle and uh, we know has killed a cop now, accidental or not, um, he can't help himself but foolishly continue to bring attention. Um, to himself, even after the carjacking, uh, he he can never seem to quit wearing flashy clothes. He tries to no. ditch his outfit and goes to a thrift store, and then he comes out in um, you know plaid pants and a white button-up shirt. Which again, yeah, it's a different outfit, but it's, but it's, it's a pretty but, identifiable. Outfit. But what's amazing, I mean, yeah, it makes sense for like you know early '80s and whatnot. But what what's amazing is. If you look carefully at um, I'm gonna I forget I'm gonna I don't think I have his name down, but the John P. Ryan character, the cop, oh, he's um, wearing departmental, yeah, part, yeah. He he is also wearing like plaid pants, but they're yeah. like like his getup is actually surprisingly loud and garish, but it's loud and garish in a way that that shows exactly how natural Jesse is in even in the clothes that he got from a thrift store. Yeah. That you know they're loud and ugly in the same, in a contrasting way that I think uh, you know to, to to Jesse's clothes, which are loud but they fit his personality. Right. And uh, and John, I, I like John P. Ryan, but man, not not many people can play a prick like that guy could. Oh God! Um, yeah, I mean, which sure. which you, young man, will be learning next week, yeah. uh, if I can dangle <laughs> something to you. But uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting because the more the more I see the, the you know one point five watches, I'm looking at like John Ryan, and I'm like, what the fuck is he wearing? Like each of them is wearing like completely loud clothes. Yeah. But uh, but just they have totally different um. Totally different results. Um, the uh, also you're mentioning um, the scene with uh, with Mikey Pinero with Miguel Pinero. Um, I love the random appearance of Bruce Valanche. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, there there, there are several. He is like man that, that man up. with man with purse, purse who <laughs> who gets locked in a bathroom stall by gear. And then he uh, uh, who, who 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 snatches his purse to get the cash out of it. At which point he yells, "My purse!" Which <laughs> is just hilarious. You know, it's it, it's great. It, it's fun to see a younger Bruce Valanche. Anyway, but that guy's always you yeah. Know, like, I mean, we're, yeah. Bruce what, what a legacy! What a legacy he he has, even if he's not on screen. That guy's yeah. that guy's you know, as a writer has done so much. Anyway, yeah, so. insane. A six-time Emmy winner. Uh, you know, obviously he's well known for his stint on. Hollywood Squares. He was the head writer for the Oscars for 14 years from 2000 yeah. to 2014. And um, he, you know, he popped up in, you know, many an acting roles, mainly playing himself, but he also appeared in the Ice Pirates a year after.
after Breathless. But yeah, incredibly talented guy. He, he wrote the Star Wars it. Christmas special. The Star Wars Christmas special he wrote. And we'll never forget it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but but he also he was uh, he he's also got some. I mean, that guy's got some great Hollywood stories. I I think I think Bruce Valanche might have been the person who 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 told the story about uh, uh Paul Lind. Mm-hmm. Uh, about Poland being a raving anti-Semite, especially <laughs> um, if you watch the, um, it, it's uh, Poland is discussed in, in in lots of in lots of cases, especially on the especially on the Gilbert podcast, especially when Gilbert has the opportunity to do his Poland impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, Poland Center Square, um, remarkably flamboyant uh, gay man from the era of time when remarkably flamboyant gay men could be on TV and everyone would just be like, Oh, they're so distinctive, you know, the, right. you know the, but anyway, uh, the, the, they're so, they're so curious, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, without mentioning that, you know, p- particularly their gayness, but, uh, he's, um, in the, in Scotty, the, the documentary version of the full service book, the Scotty Bowers book mm-hmm. in the documentary, they talk about how, uh, he was, you know, Poland was a pretty, he had, he had a lot of problems, but one of them was he had a real serious alcohol problem. And one of the guys who used to trick Paul Lind, because Scotty Bowers arranged, you know, trysts and mm-hmm. you know, sex for celebrities, especially um, especially uh, gay and lesbian sex. Uh, one of the guys is like, oh, Paul Lind, one drink, fine. Two drinks, forget it. Like, as soon as he had two drinks. But yeah, Bruce, I, I think it was Bruce Valanche who told the story about how you know, uh, if, uh, it, it, you know, he, Poland would spend the lunches um, on set getting tanked and then just complaining about how the Jews are the reason he doesn't have a career. Which, if you've never heard Gilbert Gottfried do his impression of Paul Lind, it, it might be worth pausing this podcast to hear that. So. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so Bruce, you know, Bruce Valance pops up. Um, uh, Art Mitrano. You know, yeah. uh, you know the one stand-up comedian who's in this movie, yeah. <laughs> uh, known for really silly, uh, really silly stuff. But he's he, he's kind of great in his own way. He's uh, I don't know if you have ever seen the um, oh god uh, the um, the Andy Sedaris movie, his second seven? movie, Seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, with, with Art Mitrano. Where Art Mitrano, like as a member of this crack, like. A member of this like crack team, uh, you know, one guy is like a specialist in bombs. One guy is a specialist in in hand to hand combat, and Art Mitrano is the specialist in bad stand up comedy. Um, Seven is totally worth seeing. But anyway, yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah, he was kept uh, pretty busy um, in the eighties in comedies. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, people will in. know him. For, people will always know him from Police Academy. Yeah, Police Academy 2 and 3, uh, History of the World Part 1. But then he kept really busy in episodic television. Uh, Punky Brewster, Fantasy yep. Island, Bewitched, Joni Loves Chachi. Uh, really, really busy. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Paul, who is Monica's professor. And there's obviously some romantic entanglement. Obviously, you've talked about Monica kind of using Paul um, to kind of get to that next step. But there was something right. in there. We've obviously established what a zero Paul is just a total cornball. She absolutely needs to ditch the zero, get with the hero that we believe is Jesse. But he's but he's introducing her to people. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah, there there is certainly a value um that is coming from knowing Paul and his connections, and that's exactly what Monica is tapping into. And the big and the big goal for her that we see in, in the movie anyway, not maybe not a long term goal. Yeah. Um and I think I, I love how this is presented. 
Um, it's in terms of how I, it's clear that McBride or, or the production of this movie is playing with the idea of her Frenchness, stereotypical Frenchness, and so forth. But her goal that that really Paul that, that we see uh, fulfilled is that Paul gets her to this famous um, architect, Doctor Boudreau, yeah. um, and and uh, and and she says. So she is the she's the pragmatic French person, uh, but she's also kind of like got this weird optimism to her, yeah. Uh, especially in terms of her career. But the idea that she's a she's the French character, so she's kind of in some ways her character is carrying the burden of uh, the original French production. But mm-hmm. e- even though she's 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 been her character has been switched because she's she's you know since they switched the, the roles of the characters, but yeah. she reach she reaches the other French character who is who is the, the 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 doctor of architecture I assume yeah who she's been looking forward to meeting and she says, I want to be able to to build to make buildings that last you know like she's mm-hmm. meeting the the hero yeah. and he quick he just quick he just looks at her and says. Don't be foolish. Nothing lasts. Right. <laughs> just just yeah, like just totally which shatters is, that. Which is like it's almost like it's almost like um, one French stereotype meets another. You know, yeah. like yeah. Even, even, okay. So she, that, that doesn't really work because she's not really a French stereotype. But she's she's playing the pragmatic person, and all of a sudden she she meets a doctor. She meets someone of learning, someone who's of a station above her, someone who she aspires to and he just kind of like throws this one line at her that is philosophy you know outside of her sheer ambition here is some philosophy where it's like you're being silly nothing lasts you know right. and, and and it's just and, and and i don't think she reacts to it very strongly um but uh i just i love that quick moment that yeah. that quick you know it's like it makes me think of um of uh, of frost of uh, of of um what is it uh, nothing gold can stay yeah by yeah. Uh, by Robert Frost but anyway Gary yeah there's a I want to just talk about William Tepper who plays Paul real quick um, an actor that didn't do a ton of stuff he appeared in Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks um, but he also did a film in 1985 called Miss Wright um, that was directed by Paul Williams. Uh, political filmmaker um, did some not, things. Not the singer, Paul Williams. No, not the singer. Um, political filmmaker. He did such things as uh, Out of It from 1969 and Nunzio in 78. So he um, did this oh, film with Paul. Nunzio is an interesting movie. I've been meaning to watch that for a while. Um, yeah, it, it's here. it's uh, Joe Spinell's in it. It's apparently pretty low budget, but it's it's very. Um, uh, from what I've seen and heard of it, it's very like much a piece of of what Brooklyn. I think it's a Brooklyn movie. What Brooklyn used to be, you know, mm-hmm. like not the place to go to, but the place to escape from. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, th- there was just a few things because since he had such a limited credits, this one really stuck out to me. So he made this film with Williams called Miss Wright in '85 that he um, Tepper again starred and wrote the screenplay for, um, where he huh. plays a womanizing journalist in Rome who must break off his numerous other romances after falling for the woman of his dreams. It co-stars Margot Ritter and Karen Black. <laughs> like this is a film that's got to come upon our radar at some point because it just sounds too interesting to pass yeah up. make a note of that i'm, inter- I'm totally interested yeah, in that very interesting good. um i guess uh you know there's a few other people that kind of jump in here similar to miguel pinedo uh lisa jane persky uh 
from Peggy Sue got married, appears as a sales girl. Uh, the great James Hong from Big Trouble in Little China and 977 other <laughs> movies appears briefly as a grocer. Don't forget, don't forget, he's also a director. He directed, director. he directed Teen Lust, Hot Connections, The Vineyard. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things I was trying to figure out, um, I didn't look super close to it, uh, too super close at it. But he's, uh, yeah, he's the grocer. But looking at that scene, another one of the movies I wrote in the, I wrote in the right margin, is that the same place as in Repo Man? It looks like it could be the same place that I they go to so. buy the, the generic drink. Yeah. The six yeah. pack of let, let's go get a drink, you know, yeah. from from uh, from Repo Man. Yeah. Uh, the place I, the I, place that's getting held up. It looks like it from the inside I, anyway. I, I think you'd be right, actually, because I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I'm happy you said that because that's exactly what I was thinking of. So thank there you. There is there is, you know, there is a, a good dose of repo man. It doesn't have quite the the wacky uh, oddball angle that uh that repo man has but the idea of like let's show some of the quirky the quirkier less flamboyant parts of la uh <laughs> much like mike's murder yeah um, definitely yeah i like i really really enjoyed that yeah um you know i guess we'll we'll jump more back into the plot of the film um so obviously, Jesse is pretty uh, relentless in his pursuit of Monica, and as we've already established, she's pretty much kind of fallen again um, for him, but she's always kind of got, you know, like the devil and the angel on her shoulders, constantly beating at odds with, with what she in her heart wants. I think she knows that she loves and wants Jesse, but she just can't can't get over the fact that she knows that this guy is not going to be the right fit for her, so... As the movie progresses, um, things are just getting worse and worse for Jesse. He's now a wanted man for killing that cop, but he's not. Well, for, well what it, but it's gradually it's gradual because he he he. It's interesting for a guy who only reads comic books. He keeps checking the news. Yeah, like yeah. he keeps checking the news or hearing about the news. So initially, the cop was in critical condition. And then and then we you know a little later on as the plot advances, he, he sees a paper and this motorcycle cop this california highway patrol cop died mm -hmm. and and so on like you're saying yeah yeah it just it it gets worse and worse and he he has this fantasy now in his mind that he wants to get monica they want to hightail it out of there and head to mexico that's his new that's his that's his that's his end goal is to get monica and to head to mexico but obviously with things mounting up in the city, he's a wanted man, so he has to be super conscious of that. Um, there's things that, at this point, where, like you said, um, for a guy who pretty much sticks to reading uh, Silver Surfer comics, he's very much invested in the news because it pertains specifically to him. So again, uh, I do want to say... Um, However charming and resourceful Jesse is, he's also wildly reckless and acts like a child who never grew up. But therein comes the charm um, from his really starry eyed views on love. Uh, you know, the that um, when he steals money from Bruce Valanche's purse, he steals the money, leaves the bathroom, but then goes back because he thought thought he saw something else. And he takes this um, heart shaped kind of chintzy looking light up necklace and decides yeah. to give it to Monica, which, again, I don't know about you. I mean, maybe I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic or a sentimental, but I thought that was very cute. I thought it was a very cute touch on behalf of the character. So well, but it, 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 it serves, it serves uh, an interesting use because he, yeah. he says, that's my heart. 
don't break don't it. Don't break it. Yeah. But yeah. but it's you know it's this piece of plastic that she puts on. But as soon as you know, as soon as she's done with this little like you know kind of ra- random escapade, as far as she's concerned, where they go to see, you know, Pinero in the bar, and she's like, "What is this place? It's very sinister." I think she's. Yeah. I think she says it's very sinister. Yeah. Um, this bar. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Before I forget, uh, Miguel Pinero has a great line because he's yelling at somebody on the phone, and he did. <laughs> Here's a line for you. I don't care if your mother got syphilis. I want my money. Which is, which is, you know, that's, that's you know, that, that's Mikey. I need, you know, you you don't get mother mother syphilis lines in every movie. No. Uh, no but yeah. So, but she, but you see this one scene. I think it's kind of like a long shot of her. Or a medium shot, whatever, uh, of her on an escalator when she's going to meet Paul after she's left, mm-hmm. where she you see her taking the necklace off. Like the necklace is a frivolity, and that's one of these like divisions between her and her goals and her sense of order. So it's kind of like she is she, she she gets away from Jesse for the moment, but now has to like stiffen up and be right. this person that she's trying to be, you know, vis a vis like Paul and the whole like academic establishment that she's trying to use to get to, you know, her next goal in life, her next, her, her, her plan. Like there's this idea of her plan in this movie. Right. Um, as it, as it, as it contrasts directly with everything uh, that Jesse does and stands for. Yeah. And that, that in turn goes again to this kind of immature, immaturity that, is deeply embedded in Jesse. Like I said, uh, you know, he hand on one hand, he it does something very sweet for Monica, gives her um, that necklace, you know, here's my heart, don't break it. But then on the other <laughs> hand, he, he, yeah. he goes, he goes through these very serious and, you know, Monica mentions it several times in as much as she's infatuated with him. She says several times that, you know, you scare me, Jesse, like she, she's equally as frightened as much as she is infatuated with him. So Jesse, and we see it several times in the film, he goes through these really serious bouts of harsh jealousy that rears its head every time he Mm -hmm. accuses Monica of fucking her teacher uh, when they're in bed, you know, and kind of nonchalantly, he goes, Monica, you fuck your teacher last night. Like he's, you know, he's trying to be playful about it, but he's also deadly serious because he's very in, he's deeply insecure about it. Um, Going on, you know, Jesse, you know, uh, his infatuation and love for the silver surfer character in the comics, um, we see him. And and again, I think it's really sweet and and shows an emotional side of him when he's at a a newsstand and he's like, he's like really wounded by like a negative comment that this like punk kid makes towards him. This to me was this, this is the movie. This is like, yeah, this is, this is really like the whole core. And I, I really like, I'm not a comic guy. I am not. I, I, I never got there. But I like how it's being used here so much because the comics mirror not necessarily the immaturity or shallowness, but it, it kind of it, it kind of mirrors or or shows us exactly how passion driven, if not an embodiment of passion himself, the Jesse character is. Like yeah. the sentiments that are, you know, one dimensional in one way, because they're so simply written the way that comics have to be written. But the sentiments in this, in the Silver Server, in the Silver Surfer uh, comic books, and how he relates to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I love that. Like just I, this red, ra- this random kid on a skateboard. I didn't I didn't get his name, but he looked he did look familiar to me. 
Yeah, um, I couldn't pin him at first, yeah. Yeah, he's just he's just picks this whole like and I I believe that. Like I actually believe it, like even though it's kind of weird that this 33-year-old man and mm-hmm. some like, you know, some punk kid on a skateboard, his kids goes, "Oh, you like Silver Surfer, huh?" And he, and and then he's just like he just lays into him like, yeah, he's a jerk. He's yeah. a jerk. He's he, an asshole. He, he knows life on earth has no meaning, but he stays here anyway. Oh, no, no, you're wrong. He's not a jerk, says Jesse. Yeah. You know, he likes Joker's it a hero. Here. Yeah. He wants to help people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but then, you know, and, and he reads, you know, that love is the power is supreme. And the kid, strangely enough, starts saying this line where it's like, you know, he's got the power cosmic. So it's like only a jerk. Surfer's nuts to hang around. Jesse's nuts to hang around. Right. Only a jerk would stay when he could go. He's got the power cosmic. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the main line, which is love is the power supreme. Right. And that's like the that's like the one thing when he's not like freaking out about the paper a little bit, which is very like flares up and goes away, whether it goes away in him singing an Elvis song and having sex with, with Monica in, in the, in the, uh, in a shower or whatever. But yeah. the one thing he really seems to react to in the whole movie, he barely mm-hmm. reacts to shooting a cop, even yeah. fumblingly by accident. But the one thing he reacts to is love is the power Supreme. And it sets up the second scene with silver surfer that I thought was so good where the two of them are reading Silver Surfer together. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's the, uh, you know, there must he soar alone. Yeah. Uh, line. With that, that, that yo, you know, who, who's Silver Surfer, she asks. Yeah. Um, well, he's this guy. Well, the, 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 there's a little bit more wordplay here. And I know I'm jumping ahead. But he no, says, he's got this problem. His girl, you know, they're trapped on two different galaxies. Um. And uh, but he says Silver Surfer's a freak. One of the other scenes you have this this okay. So we went from the scene with the kid and 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 the uh, and the newsstand, which is interesting because the two of them fight, like the two of them argue, and yeah. it's actually Jesse that walks away looking, um, looking re- uh, like rejected. And and uh, and, and, and the the, the, about it, so. the really sad part about that is because you know Jesse is really hurt by those kids that kid's comments and he's fighting for what the surfer stands for and believes in just like he does. And then it's almost like not only did the kid really hurt his feelings with that, but then like he's almost lost all hope once he sees the newspaper stand seeing that the cop has died because then he starts to question. Yeah. Why would anyone stay on earth? It's, it's, it's really beautiful and really sad at that moment. Like, but as it, it, to me, it underscores the fact that he's not meant for reality. Right. The Silver Surfer is not part of reality, but Jesse's not meant for the real world anyway. So right. this kid, this not this kid on a skateboard, is this agent of uh, of, of reality, mm-hmm. and it's like Jesse can't even cope with that. But what I, uh, one of the things I really, you know, the other one of the other real amazing scenes in this, I think, is the pool scene. Yeah. Um, even though it's full of like. Jesse being inarticulate, Monica actually asks him to say something nice to her, and he totally fumbles this terrible, you know, roses are red type, you know, type of poem. Yeah. Uh, What did he he say? Roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, You left me in Vegas, but I still love you. Is that right? I think it was something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and meanwhile, he's like, show me your tits. No, wait, no, show me your toes. Toes yeah, are very yeah. important. He's, mm-hmm. you know, just, it's just banal, stupid things that he's saying. But what I love is, is that she, she uses a French word there. She calls him Tare. Yeah. Which, which literally means crazy or psycho or freak. She yeah. says a, she says a disgusting person, which obviously she doesn't really mean he's a disgusting person. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that he refers to Silver Surfer and freak is that's a literal translation for Tare mm-hmm. freak. OK, yeah. and he actually goes back, you know, he calls back to that scene when when, when later on they're, they're reading Silver Surfer together. He refers to Silver Surfer as a freak. Right. Like he does that directly. And then there's then there's one point. I think it's when he's. um. When he's roughing up the Art Metrano character, his name is Burnbaum, who yeah. is who is dressed exactly the way that you would want a stand-up comic who's <laughs> running a junkyard in an eighties movie. He's dressed exactly the yeah. way you want. You know, <laughs> he checks all the boxes, ladies and gentlemen. And, and he's got this great line. See, uh, Art Metrano. Art Metrano is interesting guy. Another another guy. Who, great great Gilbert podcast. Um, uh, Sephardic Jewish family from Brooklyn is where he is what he comes from, but he uh, he has this great line where he goes because because he's Jesse's trying to get money from him for a car that he's trying to sell this guy to junkyard he's going to strip it and he's going through all the drawers and whatever and he goes he goes uh, I put the mula in the cooler with uh, his total like you know New York accent uh, and uh, and um, I think there's some point where. Uh, where uh, like it, and it, it's it's another it's a long shot, but when he's roughing up Burnbaum and and he's like no no it, it's in my shorts the money's in my shorts and he pulls the money out you you hear you actually hear uh, Jesse mumble like ah yeah okay Tare you know he's now he's lo- like learned one French word and he's right. like ah oh, yeah freak whatever freak crazy psycho you know yeah, like yeah. it just it, I, I like that he's still like he's 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 still it. There's something about him that seems so like elemental and so like developing that he just learned this random French word, yeah. and he's now made two different connections with it um, yeah. in two different contexts, which I, yeah. I thought I think it's really sweet. It really it really shows this weird this weird innocence for a guy who's so who could be so quick to violence and mm-hmm. theft, um, and it's all like kind of animal survival thinking, but he has this really unusual like innocence to him. Right. Which is which is just part of his charm in this, really. Totally. Um, uh, not to jump too far ahead, but it's also just another extension. I've, 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 like... I've jumped in three different. No, places. I mean, ahead, it, it, that's the kind of that's the effect that this movie has on you, really. Um, but just to jump slightly, uh, this is just an extension again of Jesse and this sort of like child who never grew up thing um, at the towards the conclusion of the film. Um, when Jesse and Monica are kind of holding up at the at the pines and Jesse is waiting for um, a buddy, you know, the buddy to come back and give him the money that he is uh, finally owed to him so that they can hightail yeah. Yeah, yeah. kind of hightail it to Mexico. Mind you, throughout all of this time, while Jesse is kind of growing, you know, you know, deeper and deeper, um, you know, fearful of his fate, he's constantly causing, you know, bringing more attention to him. He's stealing several cars throughout the film and not subtle cars. These are, these are like you said, you know, older cars, flashy cars, something that you absolutely could picture Jesse in something from a hot pink convertible to everything in between. But at this moment, when they're waiting at the pines, waiting for the money to be delivered, 
He gives Monica some money to fetch them some food, but, you know, not just any food, uh, true to Jesse's kind of childlike way. He specifically tells her, you know, why don't you get some ding dongs and some milk? Like, totally, <laughs> like, that's exactly like if you gave a, like an eight year old a $20 bill to feed themselves, they'd be like, I'm going to get candy and ice cream. All yeah, day. yeah. You know he, what I mean? Like, it's like he just got home from school. I want, I want, yeah. I want ding dongs and milk. Yeah. Great. And, and I love that too, because like we, and we do get a nice shot of that one Monica, like, goes to the store like you see like a quick shot of like the milk and the ding dongs like on the counter too and i was just like again like this guy like continues to charm me when all he's trying to do is like tell the love of his life like what snacks he wants but he's but 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 there's always you know there's uh, in that also and you see this over and over there's a lot of this like subtle um use of like plasticky american like consumer culture you know yeah. like especially like not just it, it, through an la lens but yeah so things like that kind of make sense that 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 he's uh he's motivated in that way even though he's not a materialistic person he's just he he's just going from one thing to the next to the next right um yeah Can we talk yeah. about the uh um I mean, we, we, we hardly scratch the surface of it, but I think it's important because, um, breathless for all of its, you know, stylistic flourishes and the charms that obviously gear and Kaprisky have on us. Um, this film is deeply erotic. I mean, I mean, it, it, it is steaming hot. Like it is so sexy. Uh, they're, um, both of these characters are, as we obviously mentioned, are wildly infatuated with each other, can't really seem to keep their clothes on when they're in Monica's apartment. Um, but yeah, very, very hot stuff. Um, you get full frontal nudity from both of them. Um, I f do feel like gear kind of cops out a lot of times. I think that you will agree with me because the camera is so just so beautiful. Oh, no, I, I, I think it's McBride copping out. Like, yeah, l l l like this. This could have been a much more lurid movie. Yeah. But uh, and I don't know how it would have necessarily jibed with the pace of it. And, and you know, mm -hmm. and. I can only imagine they had, you know, I, I think you said you didn't find that much production information on this, um, yeah. or or you know we just didn't dig it dig deep enough because uh, I didn't I didn't really you know find much myself, but I can't imagine this would have been a tricky movie to uh, to um, to sell anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I mean I think it was Ebert who said something or no sorry Gene Siskel who said something about how. Um, apparently someone was afraid of an X rating. So it's mm -hmm. like, it, 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 and in a way it's like, there are scenes that, yes, it, it is a pretty erotic movie, but it's not, yeah. it's not no nine and a half weeks, you no, know, no, it's not a, not. it doesn't, even if there's lines like, you know, I think at one point he says like, don't take a shower. I want us to smell like we've been fucking, yeah. you know, um, great line. Great line. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's that, 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 that like fun, you know, unusual scene where where he's he's kind of trying to hype himself back up after seeing uh, himself on TV uh, yeah. on a news report, and they have sex in the shower. But it's it, it's I, I think Cisco was making the point in that review where like as much as it has so much sexuality, I think he referred to it as a quote: uh, "The whole movie is an homage to Gears strutting sexuality." There's yeah. not that much sex in the movie. Um, no. It's definitely more implied than what is seen, but what is implied makes yeah. it feel very erotic to me. Sure. All all in the best ways possible. Like I, I love what this film does. 
Um, I think I, I just it's a very sexy movie. You know, the lead. I think are... this movie. I think this. I'm sorry to cut you off. No, uh, no, please. Uh, I think this movie works off of the principle that these two people know each other. You know, biblically know each other. Blah blah blah. But uh, the, the these two people in in Las Vegas, we're supposed to as viewers believe that in Vegas, the two of them obviously had you know got to know each other sexually enough that the story in the movie is them trying to figure the other parts out so to say like they figured out they figured out like a, an element of sex appeal between the two of them um you know like there's that scene when you know when um when Jesse goes to the uh, what is it called? I think it's like the coin and stamp exchange to go yeah. pick up his, where he gets his check. Yeah, and he's yeah. trying to explain to the guy who just basically says he's a fucking dope. He's crazy. He goes, you know, this girl. You know, she's uh, what is? He, how does he put it? He goes, you know, she's French. You know, he it's it's like he's trying to work it out. Like yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but just the idea that she's French and that alone is sexy. You know, yeah, it, right. it, it's kind of craftily written. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of the eroticism in this movie. Yeah, it's it's definitely sure. not it's not blatant, uh, with yeah. the exception of one real sex scene, right? Is yeah, there, that's it. Or yeah, the, they, yeah, they have the sex scene in the shower, which is uh, fantastic. It cuts, it cuts. It cuts to the bed. That's yeah, what it, cut, it, yeah, it is. That, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it cuts. The, yeah, it's all basically one scene, but uh, yeah, really hot stuff. Um, really great, and and they're great, and and I think um, Kaprisky. I believe even said that, you know, there wasn't a ton of acting going on in that, you know, a lot of that was genuine kind of um, affection for one another. And I think that it comes through beautifully on screen. I mean, you believe that chemistry and that really, you know, um, that erotic sensibility that, that, you know, that sexy charge that they have between themselves. It's really great as, as the plot thickens, if you will, um, you know, the walls are kind of closing in on Jesse and now Monica is sort of embroiled in it because Monica is sort of aiding and abetting a criminal at this point, And she has to make a decision on whether she's going to go this way or is she going to go that way? And of course, um, as we see, she decides to stick with Jesse through this. So they're kind of on the run and kind of evading the authorities to which leads to, I think one of the best moments in the film, one of the greatest scenes in the film is when Jesse and Monica, um, they uh, hide out at um, a movie theater that is screening Gun Crazy, which again kind yeah. of drives drives this home. And it, it, sure. again, it, it's one of the film's best moments. I mean, fucking behind a screen of celluloid where love torn gangsters on are on display is just fucking electric. <laughs> like, not it's just like love torn, but like you know, the, like I have I have actually seen Gun Crazy. Oh, you, have, wait, you haven't? I have. <laughs> Oh, you I have. have okay. Have, I have. Should I should I should I act like I hated it like this movie yeah, and then yeah. lie to you again? Uh, no, but it just it, but, but but it's 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 kind of it was introduced to me as kind of like a proto Bonnie and Clyde, sure. but there is a certain mania to it, you know, which I think is supposed to echo the mania of these two characters, like she giving up all these logical you know plans for this you know this kind of like dream. Uh, of his, you know, this this whole concept. Because Mexico isn't even real. It's just a concept in his head, really. Yeah. Like, the idea of Mexico and, what did she say, like, the you know, the house of grass by the sea will be in Mexico by sunrise. Like, that's totally figurative anyway. Like, yeah. whether or not they actually, she actually believes that. It's just, it's just, uh, yeah. um, it's just kind of her giving herself over to, to you know, to, to him and his, uh, and his, um, his concepts of, of, of what life could be, you know, um, 
if they get if they get away yeah. if, if he brings her to his galaxy. Right. But I, I, the other thing, just before we get a little further along, I just want to mention you can't miss the the scene with the you know where Monica argues about you know the importance of Will, William Faulkner. Yeah, you yeah. know the the <laughs> William Faulkner quote quote between between grief and nothing, I will choose grief. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah, we could say it maybe goes over. Go he and she she said it's this wonderful quote by the greatest American writer, William Faulkner. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you could say it kind of goes over his head, mm-hmm. but he says, no, nothing with me. It's all or nothing. Yeah. You know, not even contemplating like he is such, again, he's the embodiment of in the moment. Like I said, inertia stop, won't stop. just keeps moving the next thing to get into the next place, the next offer, the next idea, the next open door, etc. He's going through it. There's no, you know, he's not contemplating. He's not. Um, he's not uh, um, looking at his, at his actions whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so just the idea of he's the surfer and Monica is is William Faulkner. I yeah. thought that's I thought it's it's this beautiful little like random thing that she the you know she the 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 nineteen year old in college versus he like the thirty something who reads comic books. That one moment of like literary contrast that she's yeah. choosing she's choosing the silver surfer you know at this point in time even though she's afraid she's afraid of him she's constantly saying i don't know what you want from me um he kind of you know uh she had one where she says i i wish you wouldn't you know yeah. and, and she's she's kind of like kind of clinging to this plan you know even though she even says what she she says she might be pregnant yeah and that that's an interesting point because that you know it's it's very easy to just you know strictly get caught up in Jesse and his charisma and and really um the predicament that he's personally in but we have to remember too the stakes are raising increasingly for Monica she admits that she could possibly be pregnant she's right. choosing she's choosing now to kind of go on the lamb um, with this criminal, this murderer now, um, she's basically tossing her, her future aside to stick with this guy. And throughout it all, right up until the end, she's constantly at odds with herself. She's constantly and emotionally conflicted to yep. the point where she just surrenders to it. She goes, I can't do this. I called the cops. And he doesn't know what to do because because Monica is the center in this whole world where everything is all or nothing. Jesse adheres to a live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse kind of, kind right. of auto. But and but but he wants the girl because he's driven he, by love. Correct. He wants the girl and 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 Monica Monica is his earth. She is the center that's gonna keep this keep this together for him. He doesn't want to face the future. Everything's too uncertain. But what he what he believes is certain is his love for Monica, and he wants to keep that. So then, when she says, "I can't do this anymore," and decides to call the police, and then that's when we get that really climactic moment where the cops zero in on him. And again, she's conflicted right to the bitter end. She's crying, and then she goes back again that she wants to be with Jesse, and there. He has his hands up and the police have cornered him and his police, the police have cornered him 
and uh, they're going to take him into custody, but there's a loaded gun at his feet. And we get this right. moment where the music blares Jerry Lewis tune, Jerry Lee Lewis tunes. And he and starts he, dancing. Yes. He starts dancing. He just like is laughing in the face of all this dancing. And then a quick shot and he goes to reach for the gun. And then we get a, a freeze frame and credits, yep. which is beautiful. Freeze it's, frame. Music continues to credits. Yeah. It's, because it's, the whole thing is the whole thing is he dances his way through this movie, even through like the moments of like real dread. You yeah. know, he he is he is he's gear manages a performance that is that is basically um, you know musical uh, yeah. throughout the whole. Even if he's not singing, by the way, I, you know it's pretty random, but uh, I shipped out two records this morning. That maybe it's a sign someone bought two Jerry Lee Lewis records for me. Oh, nice! That and I'm pretty excellent. sure. I, and I'm pretty sure I shipped them to France. So you may, <laughs> you, you you figure that out. That just happened today. <laughs> That's but, fantastic. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he's uh, it, it, it's amazing how he as a character is so unrealistic. He's constantly seeking something beyond what is temporary, and yeah. she's kind of okay with temporary. And he's constantly asking too much. But that's like the whole romantic drive of that character. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and I. I, I and, and it, it does it does it does it works, but I don't even know if it's easy to con- you know to, to actually put into words how it works. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. It, there, there's just so there's just so many fantastic parts. I mean, I mean, you touched upon it with the whole Silver Surfer thing. I just love how this film can make something like pop art appear really profound and just just the context that they put it in. It's really great stuff. Um, Again, that ending is really well done and super powerful. Um, Initially, the original ending was Jesse was shot and killed, but test audiences hated it. They hated it. They didn't want to see Jesse die like that. So they went back and uh, reshot the ending. Um, Just another quick note as we as we wrap this um, this up. Um, The soundtrack is fantastic. Uh, Notable tracks from Mink DeVille, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, Sam Cooke, Dexie's Midnight Runners, The Pretenders, X. Um, as, and Jack Nietzsche as, as well, right? Yeah, I, I mean, just just fantastic. I mean, maybe you can shed maybe a little bit more light on this for as as smoke and hot as that soundtrack is. There was never an official soundtrack for the film released. I, I can only imagine it probably would have been a nightmare to get all the rights to put that on a on a soundtrack. I don't know. Maybe not then, but I I, I imagine this was you know this was probably considered too much of like a. Uh, like an art experiment and um you know maybe had it done big you know had it done bigger yeah. you know had it had it had it had a better reception perhaps but uh, yeah i did find some reviews on it i just want to throw a couple quick reviews out there because i did yeah. you know th- there are a bunch of reviews that basically talk about they isolate uh like you'd said they are a little too harsh to Kaprisky. they mm-hmm. uh they all focus on a lot of them focus on the negative ones focus on um, uh, the gear character just being very flashy. But there were some there were some interesting ideas, interesting stuff out there. This is actually from a um, a North Dakota newspaper. Oh, uh, Frank Miele, uh, first paragraph: Breathless is a reckless film, a breakneck, nonstop creative venture into pop mythology that seems to to want to shake up its audience just as much as its hero wants to shake the cops from his tail um you move down a little bit this is fascinating because i you know being able to access some of these smaller papers i think there's a lot of stuff here 
Um, not everyone will like a film as eccentric as this one. As a matter of fact, Breathless has gotten mixed to poor reviews, even in the big cities, which would seem a more natural audience for the film than North Dakota. And one of the other writers on the staff of the Bismarck Tribune, that's this, this is from that, uh-huh. was all set to write a lukewarm review of the film when my enthusiasm convinced her to withdraw in my favor. I thought, I, thought, I thought that was pretty neat. That's um, great. But yeah, th- there's a bunch of stuff that, uh, you know, a lot of people talked about how good it looks and how empty it feels, which I don't really see that. I, yeah, though, I disagree. Though in the context, you know, I mean, maybe in 83, it just, it, you know, there's something like, there's something a little bit to that. I'm not sure. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, this, I think the same guy in North Dakota, Gear ought to win an Academy Award and anything else that they're giving away in Hollywood next year. He's that good. He may be the, the best thing that's happened to American movies since Montgomery Cliff took a swing at John Wayne in Red River. Wow. This guy thought really, that was, this guy really yeah. liked Breathless. I'd like to have a drink with him. That's great. Um, uh, just rolling off of that, uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, he was puzzled why Jim McBride decided to remake a classic like Breathless, but he did state in his review, um, that the film looks too good for its own good, uh, saying Richard Silbert's production design is still another example of high cinema cheek, uh, while praising Gear and Kapriski as extremely effective, Meanwhile, Ebert gave the film uh, two and a half out of five stars, calling it a stylistic exercise without any genuine human concerns we can identify with. And yet an exercise that does have a command of its style is good looking, fun to watch and develops a certain morbid humor. Certainly don't disagree. Certainly do not agree with all of that, especially about the genuine human concerns. But, um, you know, a lot of these things that kind of downplay um, how good the film is, they do definitely get a lot of nuggets of truth about how great the film actually is without outrightly saying it. Um, Breathless came out May 13th, 1983. Uh, it was produced on, you know, a $7.5 million budget. Open number two at the box office with 4.3 opposite Blue Thunder, which won the top spot that weekend with 8.2 million. Yeah. Um, Rounding out the top five, uh, Flashdance, Dr. Detroit, and Still Smokin' were um, still fighting uh, for the uh, the top five. Um, But yeah, all in all, Breathless snagged nearly 20 million in return. So uh, quite a modest hit, but a hit nonetheless, considering its budget. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, oh, and then this I thought was pretty interesting. And I think that you'll find it particularly interesting. Michael Mann originally worked on the script, but left the project to make the keep, which personally I think was the wrong choice. Then we've talked this... about this. We've covered We've covered this before. <laughs> the keep. Uh, yeah. I have some other stuff. Uh, Steve Watkins. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot. I don't have the paper in front of me. What paper he was at. Um, it, it's, it, it, he, he harps on the comic angle, saying, like, badly. He says, it is merely the last inescapable sign that the hapless film in question, in this case, Breathless, cannot stand on its own merits, and its makers are casting about for some saving grace. And he's referring to Silver Surfer as that, which is funny to me, because I don't think that movie has, I don't think, I mean, it's important, but you mm. don't get that much in it. Um, mm. But yes, you know, it, it, this is of the time, um, you know, the last line in this review is so, so it is with Breathless, which it must be said, fails to take the breath away. Um, they, they, they kind of have to make those, yeah, those kind of, those kind of puns. But um, yeah, uh, let's see. Um, 
So he goes to so L.A. He goes to fetch his liege lady. What follows is the stuff of which movie drama is made. Breakings and enterings, chance encounters, dogged pursuits, miraculous escapes, squealing tires, moronic dialogue. And the reluctant Monica is finally run over by Mr. F Mr. Life in the Fast Lane. I mean, won over. Sorry. It's just that the guy is so boorish and crude. One gets the feeling that he simply wears the poor girl down. So, but that said, and Gene Siskel, uh, Gene Siskel's review was, it was two stars. Gene, sorry, Gene, gear just barely saves Breathless. Um, but there was one other that I liked that was actually a female reviewer, I think, in South Florida, hmm. um, which I thought was, you know, some people really got it, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. I have the Canby review here also. Yeah. Um, um, he, who, he, I think he refers to the movie as looks so filthy rich and so elegantly composed. I but, like that. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm not going to find it. Um, Candace Russell. Uh, let's see. Um, and I think this is, this is South Florida. She says, uh, what they set off in each other is the need to live dangerously. The two, the, the two lead characters, which I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, together, they are almost divinely impervious to, the outside, to outside threats. While their mutual attraction isn't fatal, it is limited to pure animal passion. Let's see. In a sense, Breathless is exposed without the pretensions. Both films feature exotic-looking co-eds attracted against their better judgment to men of danger whose obsessions are not their own. Director Jim McBride who co-writes the, the screenplay with, with L.M. Kit Carson, an interesting character, you know, TCM2 and uh, Paris, Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, keeps the action simple and the characters fascinating. He captures the seedy side of Los Angeles as well as the splashy Trump, Trump lo, I don't know how to say that, Trump lo, Lole uh, building facades of beachside Venice. The, the city's unre unreality nicely mirrors the unreality of, of Monica and Jesse crazy in love. And I think that one is called Reckless Lovers Fuel, you know, so-and-so movie. I, I don't have the whole title in front of me. Yeah. But the, it, she refers to them as being r ridiculously ill-matched, but then argues that that's actually a good thing. So, yeah. Interesting. It, it, interesting, interesting, art, interesting, like, mix of um, pluses and minuses people focus on. Though I think even some of the worst reviews do mention how good the movie looks and how and how nicely stylized it is. Yeah. But um yeah, this this was a this was a really nice surprise. This was this is definitely like this is definitely um reminiscent of uh, you know um the Amos Poe movie uh uh Alphabet City in terms mm -hmm. of being it's an urban it's an urban story. It's a very 80s movie, but it's also an art film at the same time. Yeah. So it's got like an action an 80s movie action uh 80s I should say 80s like you know bigger budget 80s action type vibe to it but it really processes it through a very artistic lens and and there's there's a lot going on there again there's there's a lot of interesting metaphors and, and references to the original movie that i think really kind of like really kind of impressed me so yeah, yeah for, for my first time i was th th this is a hell of a movie i want yeah. I, I need to i need to i need to look at watch this a few more times to kind of keep peeling back what's going on here yeah but uh I really engaging Really I guess stuff. it's no surprise too that 
uh, Breathless was produced by Orion Pictures. Uh, this was relatively early in their career, but oh my god, I mean, Orion, probably like the A24 of their day, you know, around this time they were putting out Over the Edge, The Wanderers, Time After Time, mm -hmm. Caddyshack, Sharky's Machine, A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, uh, First Blood, Easy Money, like really, really cool stuff. So it's, I, you know, it's really no surprise that, uh, you know, somebody like Orion picked, um, something like breathless to produce, but all in all, I'm so happy that they did because, um, yeah, if I could fuck a movie, I would fuck breathless because I just, I can't get enough of this. Can't stop. Won't stop energy <laughs> in this film. I mean, I just, I can't, I, I love it. It's, it's addicting. I Richard Gere is so charismatic. I, I just, I love this film, the pieces and yeah, you know, kind of swinging it back to the whole remake original thing. This is a remake where I think, um, not only surpasses the original, but is just a damn good film on its own two legs without any of the comparisons. And I really, hope uh you know tarantino has hailed it uh larry karaszewski has even uh, gone on record saying that he thinks you know american gigolo gets all the buzz but he thinks that this is the film that richard Gere is at his sexiest and i would agree with that um yeah so yeah, yeah i just that, i really that's fair that's fair definitely i just think that like breathless really deserves a lot more um kind of reassessment from people and i certainly hope that your first time introduces even more people to it I think I think there's a lot of people who were really obviously influenced by this movie. Uh, even if, oh yeah, I found the Gene Siskel quote. He says, I think one of the last things he says in uh, in his review was, "Breathless may wake up the look of American movies, even if the relationship between Gear and, and Kaprisky puts most of us to sleep." <laughs> boo. Boo, um, boo, boo. I don't think there would have been a true romance if it wasn't for this movie. Yeah, I think between that both Tony yeah. Tony Scott and uh, you know, t I think t Tarantino is definitely laying a lot of his love for Breathless into into that movie. Yeah, um, I mean, Richard you know, Gere's character is sort of like the archetype of Tarantino characters to come. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, like I, I there's echoes of the previous Three Days of the Condor in it. You know, a man in yeah. trouble. A man in trouble uh, in that movie accidentally falls in love, but uh, or or, or in a, into a relationship, I should say. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, I, th I even think there's a little bit of this movie in Good Time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not nearly as abusive, uh, or, or it doesn't involve as much using people. But um, yeah, there's a there's a lot. This movie's been pulled from a lot. I, I, I think I could safely say that from 1.5 viewings of it. But uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm ready. To, I, 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 I am ready to snack on this movie once again. As it was, uh, it was really something. It was really. Uh, I'm, uh, thank you for thank you for suggesting it because it was um, it was on my list, and I, I see why people love it. Um, even if some film nerds are still mad. I'm sure they I'm sure they are. There, there's no way around it. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Well, I am so glad. So that makes us two for two on this first time series. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm 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 so jazzed that you uh, took to Breathless as I hoped you would. Um, but I think that about does it for us. I think uh, we've yapped enough this time. Dino, can you please tell people where they can find us? Definitely, uh, I eat movies on Facebook. I eat movies podcast on Instagram. We should be available through all your podcatchers: uh, Apple, Anchor, 
um, Spotify, please uh, leave a message. Tell us, you know, tell the people, uh, you know, rate our podcast. Tell them how or why, if you have any idea, you can stomach hearing us talk. Um, and uh, maybe other people w- would like that also. But, you know, we like doing this and we hope, uh, yeah, you know, we, we hope to keep doing it. And we, uh, th- there's some great response we've gotten from people and super thankful for that. So, Awesome. Yes. Happy to keep eating. Happy to keep eating movies. Yes. I'm, I'm always happy to munch on some more movies. Uh, always a pleasure, my man. Uh, again, guys, thank you guys for tuning in to I eat movies and until next time. Thank you.